Hi everyone and welcome to Nella's Tin Trunk Podcast. I'm going solo today as I talk about, well, the first time I went solo in an airplane. And rather coolly, I think, I'm preparing this from an airplane right now on my way from Addis Ababa, Ethiopia to Buenos Aires, Argentina, albeit in a much bigger one than I fly. Recently, a client told me he learned about Tin Trunk by searching for aviation podcasts and ended up finding this one. It surprised me, for I haven't really spoken a lot about flying on the podcast. Of course, it does begin and end with the sound of me buzzing over our home in my Cessna 185, a tail dragger from 1960 with the call sign 5Y Bravo Alpha Delta, better known as bad. And I should explain that in contradiction to the usual custom of calling planes and boats with the pronoun she, bad is a he for me. That's just what it feels like. So some say she, and I say he, and my guess is bad doesn't mind either way. I'm in the process of writing a children's story about him. It's told from his point of view and using his adventurous history. From the Cessna factory in the United States to Africa, oil and gas exploration in Kenya, to having floats on instead of wheels, to landing on dry riverbeds, and including a whole slew of adventures with his various owners in Kenya, all of whom have as much character as this uber cool airplane does. And for more on that, stay tuned for the story. Thanks to the client who found me through aviation podcasts, I have decided to do a few around this theme, telling my story of becoming a pilot here first and following that now and again with interviews and stories about the amazing bush pilots we have in our midst in Africa. There are indeed loads of stories to tell. Bush pilots are common in Africa. Flying is the easiest, and I argue the safest, way to get around the place on safari and light aircraft, Cessna caravans mostly, but also Cessna 206s, Pilates PC-12s, and King Airs, as well as helicopters, mostly Bells, Eurocopters, and Robinsons, are very much the norm in this world. Take, for example, the Maasai Mara, Kenya's famous reserve full of animals. A flight to get there from Nairobi is about 40 minutes. A car journey would take about five hours. And with all the minibus drivers racing their clients around the place, there is a lot of passing and speeding on the two-lane road, complete with potholes and lots of big lorries doing whatever they please. Or in Botswana, for instance, where the Okavango Delta is full of water and roads are minimal. Most of the camps we love there are inaccessible by road, in fact, and you even land on airstrips sometimes to be boated or choppered in from there. Our bush pilots are in a class to themselves, compared usually to those flying around Alaska. Strips are not on tarmac, but on grass or marum or sand or dirt most of the time. They're often one way, meaning you can only land in one direction and take off in one direction, regardless of the wind. 
And ideally, you do land and take off into the wind. So that makes it tricky sometimes. Some strips have obstacles, like power lines and trees on approach, warthogs on the strip, or holes left last night by clandestine aardvarks. To put it mildly, a bush pilot in Africa needs to know his or her stuff. There is no tower telling you what to do, where to turn, what heading to follow, or giving you weather reports. You must rely on your knowledge, instinct, and experience. On safari, we talk of private charters, whereby you have your own plane with friends and family, and we decide the departure time. The big beauty here is that the plane waits for you instead of the usual schlep of getting to the airport or airstrip early and waiting around. These flights also go directly to your destination rather than hopping around as the schedule flights sometimes do. In some safari destinations, though, scheduled flights work really well. This is something we always discuss with clients about their preferences. What we don't do is drive people these huge distances on bad roads with some crazy drivers. So that's hopefully interesting for those of you thinking of coming to Africa on safari. Flying is the quickest, safest, and most fun way to get around for sure. When I moved to Kenya from Italy back in 2004, I had no idea I would end up a bush pilot in Africa. I had never even been in a small aircraft, nor I had, had I much interest in flying. After the safari and the fateful dinner party where I met James, my husband, he invited me back, and his friend took us to a safari lodge in his friend's plane. It was my first time in a small aircraft, and quite serendipitously, it was the same kind of plane I now own and fly around Kenya. I give a lot of credit to my desire to learn to fly to some good friends of ours, James and Lel Cartwright. I had just done some freelance guiding for a big safari company who will remain nameless. These were, quote, VIP clients, a term I pretty much loathe. They were from Italy and I was hired to co-guide and be their interpreter. It was rather a comedy of errors, and I will spare you the details, but on January 1st, 2005, I was riding horses with the Cartwrights, and upon hearing my complaints about how things were not buttoned up for those clients as I would have liked, James Cartwright said that I should just do this for myself, learn about the best of the best, and start my own safari business. I came up with excuse after excuse. I'm not third generation Kenyan. I'm not a man. I don't know every tree in Latin. He shut them down again and again and said, Lel can fly you around to see the best of the best in Kenya and you can just go for it. Finally, I told him I would give it serious thought and obviously I did indeed go for it. Lel flew me all over Kenya in her beloved Reams rocket called 5Y Lima Echo Lima or Lel. As we soared over Africa, looking at the changing landscape, bamboo on the tops of mountains, elephants crossing rivers, huge grass plains, and then landing for me to test drive amazing lodges and camps, I felt like I was in a movie. You can probably guess which one if you like Robert Redford and Meryl Streep. Those flying experiences deepened my love for Africa 
and not surprisingly gave me a whole new idea about flying. It was cool, amazing, intrepid, adventurous, and oh so easy to get around when you take off from home. In fact, Lel literally parks her plane outside the kitchen, and nowadays I park just down the airstrip on our land as well. You take off from home and you end up in the paradisiacal African wilderness, often in a half hour or so. So Lel started teaching me from the co-pilot seat. Pilots are on the right side, sorry, are the left side of the planes, unlike helicopter pilots who fly from the right side. I remember feeling the excitement after Lel would take off and say, okay, here's our heading and you have control. About a year and a half after moving to Kenya, I bought a piece of land on the side of Iburu Mountain overlooking Lake Naivasha in a residential estate called Green Park. Green Park began as a dream of a charismatic Dane who was our good friend until he passed away. These are five acre minimum plots and I found one that I loved with stunning views of the Great Rift Valley and the lake. It's where we still live today and at the time there was only a small tongue and groove wooden cabin. It was pretty rustic with horrible plastic slat windows and well, nothing even remotely feng shui, let's just say. I started talking with architects about building something great on another part of the plot with outstanding views. All the while going to explore more and more of Kenya and Lel's plane. One day while on safari in Laikipia in the north of Kenya, sitting on the roof of the land cruiser on a game drive, I announced that I would not be building a house after all. I would instead fix up the existing cottage and use those funds to get my pilot's license. I knew I didn't have the means to buy a plane, but figured I could rent one from time to time. I trusted it would all work out somehow and was convinced that my life in Africa needed to include flying above this incredible beauty as much as I could. It took me a year to get the required 55 hours, a combination of instructed flying, solo flights, cross countries, and emergency procedures. During that time, I interspersed flying lessons in Nairobi with building my safari business, Tin Trunk, which required travel to the US, UK, and elsewhere. I had a great teacher, Fahim, who wisely told me that I need to do what he calls armchair flying and what I call virtual flying if I was going to take these month-long breaks sometimes between lessons. Indeed, it's what I did. I would be sitting in California or London or Florence and imagine myself walking up to the plane, noticing the fuselage, checking that all looked normal, and then proceeding to go through all of my checks in my mind's eye. I would imagine taking off and doing a circuit at Wilson Airport in Nairobi, preparing to land, doing a touch and go, and so on. I'm happy to say that on more than one occasion, back in the plane with Fahim, he asked if I had flown while I was away. Nope. It's the virtual flying, I would say. Inevitably, he would then pull the power and say, okay, you've lost power, what do you do? Making me go through the steps of a practice force landing literally on my first day back. 
for any of you who are familiar with flying, you know what going solo means. It's pretty much about the landing. The rest's taking off, flying straight and level, turning, is pretty straightforward. But the landing is kind of the big deal in the beginning. Your teacher is in the co-pilot seat right from the beginning, and so you, in the pilot seat, are in control. I remember my very first lesson when I sat in that seat, up in the air, learning how steep turns can turn into spiral dives and how to make sure you don't do that. I imagine that Fahim wasn't there and thought, okay, Nella, you are on your own up here. How does it feel? When people tell me they want to fly, I tell them to take a lesson and ask themselves that question. If it feels like, no sweat, I'm totally going to get this, then maybe you are too cocky to be a good pilot. If it feels like you might throw up from the fear of being up there alone, then maybe you will be too worried and stressed to be a good pilot. If it feels pretty darn scary and also pretty darn exciting, then I say keep at it. Going solo is a big deal, especially for the ego. Many ask each other, how many hours did you have? Many practice on simulators to try and go solo fast. Lel wisely told me not to hurry going solo, as the moment I did, my teacher would be in the plane with me a lot less and the learning curve would slow down. Still, one really wants to get that landing done. One day at the Aero Club of East Africa, where I've been a member since I moved to Kenya, Lel and I climbed up this rickety tower beside the runway at the threshold of 07. We watched the planes come in to land and we watched the yellow-billed kites using their tails as rudders, discussing the dynamics of flight as seen by these adept birds of prey. I noticed that the pilots coming in to land were holding off a lot longer than I was before touching down. They floated further down the runway, losing speed and touching down lightly. That afternoon, I aced three landings in a row and Fahim called it a day. That night, I was out to dinner in Nairobi with friends, a few of them pilots, in fact, and was over the moon about my landings. I got it, I know how to do it now, I said. Really? I'm not sure I can say that myself, chuckled one pilot who was such an experienced pilot. He had ferried small planes from California to Hawaii. I'm talking like four seaters that were so heavy when they took off, they almost had to fly under the Golden Gate Bridge. And he did so before the days of GPS, using only maps and dead reckoning navigation to find those pretty tiny islands in the middle of the Pacific. I smiled and looked down at my humble pie. The following morning, Fahim and I went up and I did two more really good touch and goes. Those are when you land and then reset the plane to take back off again without coming to a stop. After two good ones, Fahim told me to tell the tower I was doing a full stop. I did and landed and began taxiing to base, thinking he was ending on a good note like yesterday. Then I heard him on the radio to the tower saying, permission to taxi for first solo. Even as I say that so many years later, I still get goosebumps. I remember feeling totally calm and saying, 
Okay, I'm going to yoga breathe and I'm going to do it. As I came around the circuit and lined up for finals, a sacred ibis flew above me. It's a beautiful black and white bird. I could see it because the lovely little Cessna 150 I was flying, called Alpha Zulu Whiskey, was an acrobatic plane and had two windows in the roofs so you could see out when you were upside down. Needless to say, that was something I was definitely not trying to do. I kept my eye looking up at the bird and forgot to call finals. The tower spoke up and gave me permission to land, and I did. After I landed, as I rolled to a stop, I radioed the tower with apologies for not calling finals. The reply was, that's okay, Nella. Congratulations on your first solo. To this day, that first solo is experience, experience is a highlight. It felt like all aspects of my life came together as I flew that circuit alone in the plane for the first time. From my childhood, to my life in Italy, to my divorce, to my new life in Africa. It was all there in that one flight. And it was beautiful and emotional. The following day, Fahim didn't get in the plane. I went alone. I was number five to land on my first circuit. Wilson is one of Africa's busiest airports due to the safari charters, the private planes, the NGOs, Red Cross, politicians, etc., etc., that use it. So I was more worried about where the other four planes were than whether I could do it that day. And those kinds of concerns remain in the bush flying. Will that zebra run across the last, at the last minute? Is the wind working with me or against me? And we're flying at what's called density altitude here too. High elevation coupled with hot temperatures, which reduces the power of an engine. Our home strip, for example, is 7,000 feet above sea level, and the temperatures at midday are often over 30 degrees Celsius. The strip is about a kilometer long, so you need to be aware of how heavy you are to be sure the plane can take off. Luckily, Bad has a very powerful engine, and I don't overload him. About a month ago, I was flying home from having visited a client on safari in the north of Kenya. It was a gorgeous morning and the skies were calm and clear. I decided to go over the Abadair Mountains. They're about 14,000 feet and you fly at 10,500 over what's called the saddle. And there are some gorgeous waterfalls and bamboo forests up there. I cruised around looking at all of this and then landed at home. When I went to fill in the logbook, I realized that I had just passed my first thousand hours of flying. Me, the waterfalls, the mountain, and bad. Not bad. So let us leave it there this time and stay tuned for some more flying stories from some of the world's best bush pilots. Thanks for listening to Nella's Tin Trunk Podcast. Wishing you joyful adventures. Until next time.